welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 172. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction audio magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Alright, so our third annual Nigerian Scam Spam Story Writing Contest has concluded, and our independent panel of Nigerians have selected a most glorious of winner to be spammed out in good fun. It's author receiving a $100 cash prize. But we're going to make you crafty spammers wait a bit and get to this week's stories first, because this is a trifecta special, and trifectas wait for no man. The Trifecta Special, of course, is an episode that we run every ten shows or so that features three different stories by three different authors read by three different storytellers, all centered around some theme. The theme of Trifecta 13, The End of Days, Stories from the Apocalypse. Yep, at some point our gooses are cooked. And it's fascinating and fun to speculate on those circumstances. Will we go out with a bang or a whimper? And why is it always just those two options? What about a gurgle, or a huff, or a smack, or a... um... smee? But probably just an oh f- Anyways, whether it's the science or the mythology behind how we kick the can, we're intrigued. Because frankly, we can't imagine things without us. And yea, I turned and saw before me, rising from the earth, a beast with seven heads, seven horns, and exactly one hundred words. And verily I say unto thee, the beast's name was Drabble. This week's Drabble story is called Shush, and it comes to us from Andy Kerr. By day, Andy pushes pixels and corrals commas as a graphic artist and webmaster for Eisenbronze, an academic publisher specializing in the ancient Near East. Drabblecast listeners may remember Andy and or Eisenbronze from Drabblecast number 109 with the Babylon Battle of the Bands Bartle. Or you might not. Go give it a listen if not. By night, Andy is a husband and father with three children under the age of seven, and says that tree houses are worth every penny and drop of sweat you put into them. Andy's other published works include You Know You're an M.K. When, a book he co-wrote and published with his then-girlfriend, now wife, about the idiosyncrasies of life as the children of missionaries. Between the two of them, they've lived in five different countries, but call Winona Lake, Indiana, home. For now. This is his first drabble. It was the end of the world, and everybody knew it. In the streets below, parties, riots, and orgies burned as people sought each other out to reunite, kill as needed, and die. In a dark apartment high above, A quiet sniffle and a hesitant wail grew louder as a weary mother rose to cradle, shush, and rock her newborn back to sleep. 
flaxen cries were muffled by the warmth of a breast, and as eyes drifted closed with contented clucks and swallows, both sat by the muted blue of the window and longed for sleep before the coming dawn. Got your whistle wet for some judgment day? Hope so. The first of our three signs and tribulations comes to us from Gary Cuba, and it's called The Apocalypse Hits Moose Fork. Gary's fictions appeared in or is scheduled in Jim Bain's Universe, Abyss and Apex, Andromeda Spaceways, Fictitious Force, Allegory, Brain Harvest, and Don't Forget the Drabblecast, way back in episode 45 with The Fine Point. That was a cool one. Seems like forever ago. The story is read to you by Nobilis Reed, host of the weekly podcast of erotic science fiction and fantasy, Nobilis Erotica. A few years ago, Nobilis says he decided to start sharing the naughty little stories he's scribbled out in hidden notebooks. To his surprise, people actually liked them. Now he can't stop. The poor man is addicted. His wife, teenage children, and even the cats just look on this wretch of a man, hunched over his computer keyboard, and shake their heads. Clearly, there is no hope for him. Symptoms of his condition include four novellas and a recently released novel. Check out his website at www.nobiliserotica.com. So, without further ado, The Apocalypse Hits Moose Fork by Gary Cuba. The approaching rider appeared haggard, and his horse's pale green coat was slick with sweat. The horseman clopped slowly down Main Street, for all the world oblivious to his surroundings. Mounted horsemen in colorful cowboy garb plodding along Moose Fork's main drag might have been appropriate during the town's annual Fourth of July parade, but it was now late September. So far as I knew, no town celebration had been planned for today. Plus, this guy's costume was pretty drab, I gotta say although his whimsically dyed horse did catch the eye. Considering our current economic situation, it wouldn't have surprised me if no civic parades ever marched on these streets again. The town was poised on the edge of total collapse. The local farmers and ranchers suffered hard times due to climate change. The banks were teetering, and anyone with half a brain was moving to places where jobs were more plentiful. Many of the shop fronts along Main Street were boarded up, more so each month, it seemed. The big-box Smart Mart discount store at the edge of town was about the only enterprise that still thrived. The rider drew up close to me as I stood by the door of my pickup truck, holding the box of roofing nails I'd just purchased from Haskell's Hardware. Yeah, I probably could have gotten them cheaper over at the discount store, but I preferred to support the local merchants as much as I could, for as long as I could. You, uh... Advertising something, mister? I said. He brought his horse to a stop and stared at me with bottomless, coal-black eyes for a long moment. The fourth seal has been broken. The end times are nigh, he said in a gravelly voice. Then he began coughing uncontrollably. It raised the hairs on my neck to hear it, the dry, unproductive hacking and wheezing that marked a man who'd smoked way too many Marlboros over the years. I dropped the heavy box onto the bed of my truck, then reached into a grocery bag 
withdrew a can of beer from the 12-pack I'd picked up earlier at Sarah's Stop and Shop and handed it to him. You sound like you need something to quench your parched throat, stranger. The man on the pale horse reached over, took the can, and looked at it quizzically. After a few more seconds of hesitation, he squeezed it until the top popped, leaned back and poured the foamy contents into his mouth, draining it in a single long pull. He gave out a wet belch and tossed the empty over his shoulder. Much obliged, he said. My horse thirsts too. I popped another can and poured it slowly into the horse's mouth. Things were starting to feel more than a little surrealistic. What's your name, stranger? I said. Mine's Ned. Welcome to Moose Fork for what it's worth, which is not much lately. Put her there. I reached my hand up, but the rider ignored it. I am called Death, here to prepare the way for Hades, who is close behind me. I bring oblivion to a quarter of all mankind. With that, he pulled a gleaming sword from a scabbard slung across his back and pointed it at the smart mart in the distance. The building collapsed in a clattering cloud of dust and debris. Huh, I said. Not meaning to sound unneighborly, friend, but there were quite a few good folks inside there. Some of them God-fearing churchgoers. What's the deal with that? It's a matter of meat puppet packing density. I can't waste precious energy and time picking off onesies and twosies. Well, it looks like you just took out the closest thing to a crowd to be found in this old town. But that just seems a tad indiscriminate to me. It doesn't matter beans to you about how righteous those people were. Pale Rider swung his sword down and pointed it straight at me. Not my job to decide. The boss can deal with all that soul-sorting business. Thanks for the drink, but I've got to keep moving. I have to meet my three mates outside of Karachi and... He closed his black eyes for a moment and sighed. In less than 36 hours, and I've got a lot of ground to cover before then. He clucked at his horse and plodded on down the full length of Main Street, finally disappearing in the heat waves that rose above the asphalt highway at the edge of town. It all didn't make much sense to me. Given the town's recent prognosis, I don't know why the Pale Rider had even bothered to pass through here. But then I thought, well, with the smart mark gone, maybe the local merchants could make a better go of things. Maybe we'd even start to see some small shops open back up on Main Street. Hell, maybe this end times business was just the shot of tonic our little bird needed. next story is in somewhat of an uncharacteristic format, a series of 100-word stories standing alone, yet also loosely connected, called The Six Drabbles of Separation by Kenneth Schneier. In his strange career, Ken has worked as an actor, a dishwasher, a corporate lawyer, a college professor, an IT project manager, and the assistant dean of a technology school. He was born in Detroit, but now lives in Rhode Island with a house full of performing artists, all of whom appear on his tax returns. I didn't know you could write your clowns in as dependents on your W-2s. Smee. Anyways, 
Without further delay, The Six Drabbles of Separation by Kenneth Schneier. One. No one's safe. Damned internet. No one's safe. There she is, an image on a screen, a photo from some anonymous conference. His Catherine, 20 years of disappointment stitched into her face, gray swallowing the maple. She looks like she's trying to smile. Helplessly, Edmund remembers the faintest, tiniest scar, just below her left breast, the echo of a childhood accident she relished recounting. He loved to kiss that place, her night. Like well-meaning friends, his old justifications replay. We would not have aged well together. Look how joyless she's become. Who'd want to be married to that? The empty apartment answers him. Two. Imagination's Curse I marvel at the baby's smooth skin, not a whispered hint of sorrow or hurt. My own hands bear plentiful tiny scars, recording clumsiness and inattention. How long before Timmy carries such marks, before the damage of living becomes like his tattoo? He scoots across the room, squawking and grinning. I extend my hands to him. <laughs> Hooray, well done, old man. Then, Timmy is an old man. Wife dead, children fled, body tortured, yearning for the grave. A sob of despair rips from his throat. I shake my head, coughing. Timmy hasn't noticed anything, chortling gleefully at his silly father. Three, recaptured territory. Half of the west wall remains. Snow invades the bedroom. Warily, Timothy approaches, weapon ready, boots creaking. Through punctured plaster, wind mimics women keening, a sound he alone hears among these empty houses. Snow-coated bedclothes sprawl, as if someone left in a hurry. Probably she did. Eleanor was far from here when they found her. Something lumpy trips him. Timothy stoops, uncovering a black lace bra, the sort she wore only for him, crumpled on the floor, hastily dropped. A husband's obvious questions mock him, pointless. Timothy abandons the town to tell the sergeant there is nothing of concern here. Four, too much sense. I tell people that it comes from seeing so many patients over the years. Pattern recognition, don't you know? Who would believe the truth? 
It started in the war, coming like emergency supplies. That young soldier raving about his wife, dead in the invasion. With a touch, I felt which organ was pierced. I tasted the toxins in his blood. Now that peace is here, of course, the talent comes in handy. But Dad is so glad to be out of the cardiac care unit that I pretend I'm like everyone else and can't feel the rot in his brain. Five, next year's bulbs. Dirt under Natalie's fingernails, smell of earth and cool fall air reassure her. There was no war. There is no plague. Mother mutters, why did we put lilies here? Natalie swallows. It was the color balance, remember? Mother rolls her eyes. Of course I remember, Nat. It was a rhetorical question. Natalie exhales. It's stupid to scrutinize everything everybody says, but the brain rot is so contagious, swift and final, taking husband, children, everyone. Each time the wrong words come out, she thinks, is this it? She'll drive herself crazy this way. Mother flashes her most charming smile. Have we met? Six, and what remains? The dead cannot forget, cannot avoid, cannot change. A perverse gravitation drags Edmund after Catherine like a toy through the muck. He cannot stop, she cannot escape. He has no distinction, no solace after war and plague. Only, eternally, her. It has been 948 years, 14 days, 7 minutes, 21 seconds. 22 seconds. There is no maple hair, no scar under the breast, just the reminder of his folly. Eyes that are not eyes, searing with revulsion. Once he'd thought, let all humanity vanish so long as I can be with her. And now they have. And now he must. Yeah, six is a pretty good place to stop. The seventh travel would have probably had Kevin Bacon in it. Up, oh, that's the Kevin Bacon trumpet. Must be time for our last story, Waiting for Grimm by Bruce Golden. Bruce has sold more than 80 short stories published across seven countries, most recently to Pedestal, Postscripts, and Damnation Books. He's also appeared on the Drabblecast before, back in episode 103 with Out of His League. Check that out in the archives. 
Reading the story, we have Paul S. Jenkins, a reader I've always enjoyed from various points across the net. Paul still produces the occasional podcast, and will at some stage be podcasting the as-yet unfinished sequel to his SF novel, The Plit Own Revisionist, which is itself available in free serial audio form at patiobooks.com. You can find that link in our show notes. Check out his blog on Matters Skeptical at evilburnie.co.uk, also in our show notes. So, bunker down, sinners. We bring you Waiting for Grimm by Bruce Golden. One sat cross-legged, the other two propped against an outcropping of granite. A trio of horses stirred restlessly nearby, tethered to a dying sycamore. The half-eaten remains of a jackrabbit hung from a spit over the withering fire. Overhead, a lone buzzard circled, undeterred by the menacing swarm of NIMBY looming in the western sky. "'Come on, it's your turn,' urged the first one, scratching a septic rash on his arm. Ignoring the nag, his heavily scarred companion groused, "'When's he going to get here? I'm tired of waiting.' "'Yeah, I'm getting hungry.' said the scarecrow-thin third fellow. "'You're always hungry,' complained Scar. "'Eat some more rabbit.' "'It tastes like rat.' "'You would know.' The expressive but roomy eyes of the first fellow said he'd heard it all before. He scratched some more and coughed. "'Spitting,' he said. "'He'll get here when he gets here. "'Make your play already.' "'All right, all right, hold your pus. "'Here.' Scar tossed aside his scarlet cloak, leaned over the four-sided board situated between them, and placed his inscribed chips just so. Rumi turned his head sideways to read. Strife. You always use that one, mocked Scarecrow. I can't help it if I always draw those letters. A couple of triple letter scores, two, three, that's eleven points, tallied Rumi. Eleven chuckled Scarecrow derisively. Scar raised his gauntlet-covered fist as if to backhand Scarecrow's cracked lips, but restrained himself. Let's see what you can do, scrawny. Scarecrow fingered his chips contemplatively, but withheld his move. Did you see the latest M. Night Shyamalan movie? I laughed so hard I nearly cracked a rib. It was a hoot. A hoot? Who talks like that? What in the seven fiery torments of Hades is a hoot? "'Damn, you're cranky today,' said Rumi. "'That's what happens when you sleep with your sword.' Scarecrow sniggered. "'He woke up on the wrong side of his sword. "'Get it?' Scar shot Scarecrow a look that would melt the armour off a panzer. "'It's a joke,' said Rumi, as if tired of playing conciliator. "'Just a joke.' Scar sheathed his gaze and mumbled. "'Yeah, you guys are funnier than a barrel full of fuming nitric acid.' Quicker than Scarecrow could repost, Rumi farted explosively and all three burst out laughing. "'Okay, here we go,' said Scarecrow, his bony fingers placing five chips to intersect the R of the last word. "'Read it and weep, boys. Drought. Triple word score, that's thirty-nine big points.' Scar made a noise signifying he could care less and stood up to scan the horizon. "'Where the hell is he? He's always late. We're always waiting on him.' Rumi didn't bother to answer. Instead, he studied his own chips. "'You guys want to catch a flick later?' asked Scarecrow. 
I can already taste that butter-drenched theatre popcorn. Films are irrelevant, responded Rumi. Give me a good poetry reading any time. Scar snorted, startling the horses. Rumi went on. Celluloid, videotape, laser discs, they'll melt. Books will burn. An entire book can't be memorised, with apologies to Ray Bradbury, but a poem can be. Poetry is truly eternal. He spread out his chips on the board. Scourge, that's twenty for me. Scarecrow nudged Scar. Who do you think would win in a fight between Adolf Hitler and Charles Manson? Manson, Scar replied assuredly. He's one crazy bastard. He'd crush Hitler. I don't know. Hitler was awfully wiry. They say Manson had twice the strength of a normal man when he went berserk, added Rumi. Who's they? groused Scar. Everyone's always saying, they say this and they say that. Who are they? Well, began Rumi, nominally they refers informally to people in general or those regarded collectively as being in authority or in the know. What the blazes does, his retort was interrupted by the approach of pounding hooves. Scar stood immediately, his hand reaching for the ruby hilt of his sword. It's about time, he said, recognising the incoming rider. I'm ready to kick some ass. The rider approached, slowing his ebony horse to an unwilling trot. Skeletal-like fingers gripped the long-handled scythe resting across his saddle. His grim face was shadowed by the hood of his coal-black cloak, but his eyes were white-hot. He yanked on the reins. His horse reared. "'Mount up!' his voice echoed as if from a tomb. The trio complied. Scarecrow yanked his pitchfork from where he'd planted it. Rumi picked up his bow and quiver, leaving a trail of maggots in the dust. Scar strode across their unfinished game, scattering the inscribed chips, and pulled himself atop his anxious red-eyed sorrel. "'Where to?' he asked. "'Somewhere gluttonous, I hope,' responded Scarecrow. "'I prefer a healthy climb,' replied Rumi, barely getting the words out before he began to cough. He covered his mouth with a gangrenous hand, but not before his pale horse stamped and whinnied. They followed Grimm, guiding their steeds to the edge of the spectral mesa where they'd camped. Their leader took hold of his scythe and gestured with it through the void towards a blue sphere in the distance. "'Them again?' Scar said, shaking his head. "'You'd think they'd learn,' replied Scarecrow from atop his malnourished beast. "'It's their nature,' said Rumi. "'They'll never learn.' Scar drew his sword, the blade shrieking from its scabbard. Let's get to work. Grimm turned in his saddle and flashed a murderous gaze at his comrades. Actually, he said, his jagged teeth showing through a malevolent grin, I was thinking of blowing off work today and going bowling. Who's with me? I say we go knock some pins to hell and back again. His black horse reared high into the air, and then, as one, the four horsemen spurred their mounts and galloped into the void. Well, that was our trifecta. Hope you enjoyed. So I guess all good things must come to an end, be it existence as we know it, trifecta specials, or Nigerian scam-spam contests. We had a good chunk of entries this year. You can find them all on our discussion forums linked off drabblecast.org. So our independent panel of Nigerians endured many toilings deciding the best scam story, considering creativity, originality, and appropriate use of spelling and syntax errors. 
It wasn't easy, but it looks like they came to a consensus. And the winner of the 2010 third annual Nigerian Scam Spam email story contest is Abemolela Kwangatusi, or in Murican, Anatoly Belilovsky, better known as Bell in the Travelcast forums. Kind sir, my name is Abemolela Kwangatusi. I am the attorney representing certain persons of alien natures who recently applied for domiciles in Nigeria. They were informed that in orders to settle in our countries, they must settle all claim against them worldwide. They have herewith furnished us with comprehensive lists of all persons who were abducted and anally probed during the many years of their explorations. Your name appears on the list among other peoples in whom memory wiping was successful. Therefore, you are legitimate to receive a double settlement for your pains and sufferings and also the undignifications of the memorial wipings. The sum of U.S. $2 million will be deposits in your account upon our receiving certain trivial informations about you. Please contact us instantaneous at P.O. Box NCC 1701, Lagos, Nigeria. We look forward to recompensing your inconveniences. There you go. So what now? We email it out, old school chain letter style. If you get it in your inbox, please feel free to send it to everyone and anyone in your address book who would be entertained or pleasantly confused. You can snag a copy off our discussion forums and the Nigerian Scam Spam thread as well. Well done, Bell. We look forward to recompensing you for the fine Scam Spam story. Thanks also to all who submitted. I got a real kick out of a lot of them, really doing a lot for the lesser known, underappreciated art form of Nigerian Scam Spam prose. So, moving on, our kick-ass donor of the week this week is... Glenn Neville. Glenn's a nature photographer who, I gotta say, has some awesome links. He concentrates on raptors primarily, and you can find his shots at raptor-gallery.com. He's been photographing since he was a kid, which is also when he became a fan of radio dramas, listening to X-1, then ZBS Media, then The Fourth Tower of Inverness, then finally, podcasts such as Drabblecast. Thanks, Glenn. We appreciate the support. Folks at home, got a couple bucks laying around? Got a credit card or PayPal account? Boom! You can help contribute to something you love, presumably. The Travelcast. It's quick, easy, and oh so appreciated. We pay authors for their work because they deserve it. We produce their stories and bring them to you because we're banking on you throwing us a bone every now and then. High five, folks. High five. Alright, hope you saved room for one more story, even if it's just a small one. We still have our 100-character Twobble Twitfix story winner to go. Taking back the crown this week is Travelin' Corpse Feet, with this short but poignant tale. My zombie had problems. Trains, it mumbled over and over, all the way to the tracks where it was promptly crushed. Have Twitter? Follow us at The Drabblecast. Get these stories early each week, as well as occasional musings. Musings, people. Have a cool idea? Try writing a story with it with only 100 characters. Submit it in the TwitFix section of our forums. See how it flies. 
Oh, finally, before we go this week, we'd like to thank this week's awesome, awesome episode artist, Aaron Cambridge. Aaron has been passionately involved in the graphic arts since the days when turtles were trained in the ancient martial arts by mutant rats. It comes as no surprise that for the second time he's gotten himself involved with the likes of the Drabblecast. He's a graduate of Edinburgh University of Pennsylvania, and in recent years has found himself running a business creating fine designs for a wide variety of companies in need of graphic design, illustration, animation, printing, and web design. He currently resides in Northern California and loves surfing, his family, and of course, the Drabblecast. More information at how to hire Aaron at cambridgestudios.net. All right, weirdos, we'll see you next week. Remember, the Drabblecast is produced under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change any of it, don't sell any of it, but feel free to share it all you like. Blog about us, write us a review on iTunes if you feel so inclined, save some lost souls. Our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that poetry is truly eternal.